Good morning. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is my privilege to open the word of God. And as I mentioned from the book of Galatians, Paul says, Regular people receive the Spirit of God as they hear the word in faith. And so I'd like to ask the Lord one more time as we go to his word to let us hear this with believing hearts. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Jesus said that you love to give us good things. You love to pour your Spirit out. And we, like little children, just want to ask that you would do what you said you would do. I pray that you would help us to understand the scriptures accurately. And Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith to believe what Christ has done for us. Lord, I pray that we would feel your love in knowing his goodness to us. And I pray that you would do this through your word now. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been slowly and carefully working our way through Luke's gospel, and we are in Luke 22 and the beginning of Luke 23 today, and the biggest reason to go through one of the gospels slowly and carefully is so that we would know Christ, not that we would have our private opinions of who he is, but that we would know accurately what he did and what he said so that we can trust him fully so that we can have our faith strengthened and encouraged. And this morning, I want to entitle this message, Jesus, the Judge, Condemned for You. Jesus, the Judge, Condemned for You. And before I begin in the text, I want to just ask the question, why does this particular passage of Scripture matter? One of the things that's so helpful as you look at the Word of God is to just ask the question, why does God want us to know this? Luke, as a careful writer, as a careful historian, has wanted to organize what he calls an orderly account of all that Jesus said and did. And so as he includes this at the end of his gospel, one of the things for us to know is that this is simply a matter of history. This was something that several people witnessed firsthand. And as Luke went around, he could have talked to the apostle Peter. 
He could have talked to the people who served on the Sanhedrin. You know, the the Jews who condemned Christ publicly continued very often to publicly talk about why he was condemned. And so this was not private. This was something that was a matter of history. So one of the things that we ought to walk away from is this is something that really happened. Not only that, this matters very much because you and I have to make the same sort of decision about what we believe about Christ. This account shows that Jesus Christ is publicly shown to be innocent of any wrongdoing. And in fact, the charge that he was condemned on only would hold him guilty if he were not telling the truth. What Jesus says is that he is going to come to judge the world in power. That when he was crucified and rose from the dead, that he was ascending to God the Father's right hand. And if he was crazy or if he was a liar, then he deserved the condemnation that was handed down to him. But if he was telling the truth, this trial demonstrates two things. Number one, he is actually innocent. That matters very much for you and for me. Because the way that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ works is that in order for you and I, who are guilty before God, to be made free, an innocent man had to take our place. If Christ was not innocent, his death was of no value. And so this historical record establishes his public innocence. And it's because, as Rob read a few moments ago in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin, because he was innocent, because he knew no sin, he could be made sin for us so that we could receive the righteousness of God when we are identified with Christ, when we are in him. So this passage establishes the innocence of Christ, and because Christ is innocent, you and I can hope in him. Maybe you come feeling guilty because of things in your past, and this can be true of Christians and non-Christians alike. But in Christ, you can find peace and forgiveness. Christianity is not a faith for innocent, good people. It's a faith for people who are guilty, who have put their hope in Christ, who is innocent. Not only does his public trial establish his innocence, But he publicly makes this claim that he is going to judge in power. Now that would be absolutely terrifying if not for this. That our judge establishes his great love for us because he is willing to suffer for us in our place. And so as I talk about Christ the judge, it's my prayer that you would not so much be afraid of him as a judge, but that you would recognize his great love for you and the opportunity to have peace and forgiveness because of what he does for you. And so I want to invite you to worship him this morning as we see him in the text here. We're going to see a few different reactions to Christ's claim in this passage. And as I go through it carefully, I want to ask you to examine your heart. First, we're going to see him condemned by religious people. And if you don't consider yourself particularly religious, that's okay. 
I, I would say that all of us have religious convictions of some sort, even if you're an atheist. If you're an atheist, your religious convictions are, none of this is true. Some of us say, well, I don't know if I can know. You might use the term agnostic. I don't know if I can know any of these things are true. If that's true, your religious convictions are, this is probably not true. And some of us today would say, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. And if that's true, the way that you should respond to this passage is you should fall on your knees and give thanks for what Jesus has done for you. As we conclude today's message, we're going to see that a guilty man, Barabbas, is set free because Jesus was condemned. And it's my invitation for you today to recognize that you and I are just like Barabbas. We are the ones who are guilty. We are the ones who are set free because Jesus took the condemnation that we deserved so that we could be made free. So I want to begin by inviting you to see these different things with me. And first off, I want to point out how Jesus is condemned by religious people. And I want to invite you to look with me at the passage of Scripture. This is going to matter a lot, and I want to make sure that you pay attention. So as I give different references, I want to invite you to find them in the the Scriptures and to read along with me. I'm in Luke chapter 22. It's most of the way through your Bible. You can use a phone. You can use one of the Bibles in the chairs around the room here. Open to Luke chapter 22, and I'm just going to read verses 66 through the end of chapter 22 to begin with. Scripture says, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together. This is following the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that that following morning, both chief priests and the scribes were all together. And they led him away to their council and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now this can be a little bit of a confusing passage of Scripture because they condemn him. And if you're not familiar with what they believe, you wonder why? What is it that he said that led, him, led them to believe that he deserved to die? Before I discuss that, I want to point out something very clearly. There is a real danger of having a heart that is closed off to the truth. I mentioned a moment ago, some people would come as an atheist and say, you know, I don't believe any of this is true. It's, they're certain none of it is true. And the problem is not that they've never heard the truth. The problem is that they've closed themselves off to the truth so they won't believe it no matter how much evidence is there. In fact, you don't even need to be an atheist for that. There are people of different religious backgrounds who have heard of Jesus, who have heard what Jesus has done, and because they have hardened their hearts, no amount of carefully reading history, no amount of understanding who God is and what Jesus has done for us in the pages of Scripture, will change their minds because they are not open to the truth. In fact, many people who call themselves agnostic have also hardened their hearts and they are no longer willing to consider evidence. And if that's you this morning, what I would ask you to do is just to recognize that if you are closed to the possibility that this is true, that you are not genuinely an open-minded person. 
You are not willing to fairly consider evidence. And all I would ask you to do right now is to allow the possibility that the pages of Scripture are telling something real and true. When Jesus said, if I tell you, you will not believe, he is pointing out to them that they are not being honest in the questions that they ask. They ask, are you the Christ? And rather than saying yes or no, he pointed out, my answer to you does not matter because you will not listen. And if that's you this morning, it's possible to miss the most important truth in all of reality. And I want to beg you to recognize that if you want to be a fair and an open-minded person, you should at least consider that this might be true. So then let's look at what he says. Verse 69, he says, From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of of the power of God. Now to us, that's not immediately obvious what he's talking about, but to the scribes and the chief priests, it was very clear what he meant for two different reasons. Number one, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. One of the most common ways that Jesus talks about himself. And it's honestly a confusing title. There's a lot of people who have a lot of different opinions about what he meant by it. But the way to clearly understand it is just to watch how he uses it. In my devotions, I've been reading through Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 2 is one of the first times that Jesus uses this title. And in it, he forgives a man's sins. And everyone looks at him and says, you you can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. And he says, well, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. He's speaking to a paralytic. He's speaking to a man who is not physically well. And then he says this, so that you would know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, get up and walk. And he heals the man. And so in the context of the healing, he establishes his authority. Now, if you look at the phrase, son of man, it's used probably 193 times in the Bible. Most of those are used in the Old Testament, and most of them literally mean a human being. Someone who has been born, period. With the understanding... That if you read the beginning of the Bible, you know that we live in a broken, fallen world, and that seems to get worse with each generation. There's this kind of biblical worldview that says God created things good, and they have gotten worse and worse ever since that fall into sin. And so, in our culture, we actually honor our children. Our hope is that our children will do better and better than we will. It's onward and upward. That's the vision. That's what we all hope for. In our culture, we honor our children, but in their culture, they honored parents and the generation of wisdom that came before them. And one of the ways, I'm going to throw my dad under the bus just a minute, and I didn't mention to him that I was going to do this. Uh, He always calls us as his kids, you know, he's he's a block off the old chip, right? Because uh, in in some sense, he he believes that his kids have surpassed him, not not me, the other kids. that they have done better than him in life, and so he's just a chip, and they're a whole block. We look to our kids to do better than we do, right? And, and I hope this for my kids as well. But in their culture, 
That was completely the opposite because the father was to be revered and respected. So it wasn't that you really thought that your kids were terrible people. But the assumption was if they succeeded, it was because they were building on your foundation. So the question in the Old Testament is, how is this phrase used? Well, let me point out two particular references. One of them is from the book of Job, and it sounds a little funny, but follow along. This is from Job. I'm going to read just a couple of lines. It says, how then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? So that's anyone, anyone who has ever been born. And then he says, Behold, even the moon is not bright, and even the stars are not pure in God's eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Now that is not a very complimentary worldview. But it's saying we have not gotten better, and it's exalting the purity of holiness of God. And in this instance, the Son of Man is just a representative of mankind. And the expectation is the Son of Man is not going to be improving the fallenness of humanity. Then Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, here's another reference. Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, asks this question of God. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. The expectation is that the son of man, just generically human, any person who has ever been born, is not an improvement on his fallen father. And yet, then you find verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So there's this bizarre position where man is in an exalted place because he's made in the image of God, and yet he's broken and fallen. So the expectation when Jesus enters the scene and says to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, is that no man, period, has the authority to do that. They don't yet have any sense that Jesus is the Son of God, but they do understand that he's a person, that he's a human being. And as Jesus challenges their worldview and says, time out, you need to know that a Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, and so he demonstrates his authority by doing a miracle that should be impossible. And he demonstrates that a person, a human being, someone who was born of a woman, and we have that record both in Luke's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, someone who is a full human being, a son of man, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. That's a general sense of what Jesus means. I am a son of man, I am fully human, but there's more. Not only does he mean it in this general sense, He also means it in a very specific sense that he is not just a son of man, although that's true, but he is the son of man that the Old Testament looks forward to. See, all the way back in Genesis 3, God promises that someone will crush the head of the serpent that introduced sin into the world. And as the scriptures go on and on from Genesis all the way through the end of the Old Testament, that becomes clearer and clearer who it will be who will do this. So I'm going to look at two passages real quickly. Psalm chapter 110. Psalm chapter 110 describes in great clarity what it is that the Son of Man will do. And I want to invite you to listen carefully 
so that you can appreciate what Jesus is saying as he's on trial. This is Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now remember what Jesus said, the next time you'll see me, I will be seated at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He's claiming a position of authority. Verse 3, the people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, this is what Jesus is talking about when he says that he is going to sit at the right hand of God. He's saying that he has a position of power, a position where he can execute judgment, and that the Lord Almighty is going to fight his battles for him. So that gives you the position of Christ. And then if you look at Daniel chapter 7, this is perhaps one of the clearest statements that Jesus makes in connection with being the Son of Man that establishes his power and authority, and the fact that he will rule and reign. So Daniel is a prophet in the Old Testament, describing what God is going to do. This is from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So this is a person that looks like a human being. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's another name for God, and was presented before him, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So go back with me to Luke's gospel. When Jesus says, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, that's the claim that he's making. That he has dominion. That he has the right to judge all nations. And that God Almighty is going to fight for him. And the people that he's speaking to have a high view of God. They have a view of God's holiness. That God is so awesome and pure. That to try to approach him as a human being you would be totally undone. In fact, think for this just just a minute. To to switch the, the, the location for just a minute. You and I have a similar view of our homes, right? We're not holy, but we understand that there are places where total strangers are not allowed to go, right? And the closer you get to our sort of sacred space, the more you are a rude person or totally inappropriate to even go there. So if I don't know you, and I'm I'm just sitting in my home one day, and you just open the door, I'm terrible at locking the door while I'm there, so, so you probably could just come right in. If you just open my door and walk in my house, and I don't know you, I'm going to look at you like, you, you don't really have a right to be here. This is my house, not your house. What, what are you doing? And if you walk into my home, I'll, I'll talk to you. We will have a conversation, right? I'm going to ask what you're doing there. But if you are so bold to not only walk into my home, but to then march into the kitchen and open my refrigerator? 
We're moving from this is slightly concerning to this is actually pretty insulting. You're acting like you belong in my home, that you can take my things. And if after you open my refrigerator and you maybe make yourself a sandwich or something like that, you go into my bedroom and you lay down in my bed and say, I'm just going to take a nap here. Like, this is my place. I am not going to be okay with that. You have violated my privacy to a degree that is worse and worse and worse. Now, if that's true of any person, if that's true of any human, all of us are mortals here, all of us are sinners, if that's true of us, how much truer is it of a holy God? You don't just march into his house and act as if you have a right to sit down while he gets up and does your bidding. And that's what Jesus is claiming he has the right to do. He's going to go sit at the right hand of God's throne. He's going to take a seat and God is going to fight for him. The question is, who does he think he is? And the priests and the scribes understand exactly what he's claiming. And they believe that he is a liar. They believe that he has no right to enter into God's presence. And so that's why they say, what further testimony do we need? That's why they accuse him of blasphemy. Because if a mere mortal says, I have the right to sit in God's presence while God does my bidding, he is deeply insulting the holiness of God, unless he is the son of God that the father has established. So do you get where this is going? They condemn him for something that is true, and he is condemned as an innocent man by people who will not believe he is who he said he is. That's a hard heart. They have every reason to believe that his claims are true. He has healed the sick. He has even raised the dead. He has taught what the Old Testament means with authority. And they have failed to listen and shut their eyes and will not consider any evidence. They will not believe his teaching. And so as he claims to have this position of power and authority, they close their hearts and they condemn him and they want to execute him. But because they are living under Roman rule, they can't do it. So first, Christ is condemned by religious people and they show us the danger of a hard heart. Next... He is condemned by a political person, and he is declared innocent. Look with me at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 23. It says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now that's a blatant lie. If you have been with us, you know when they asked Jesus about paying taxes, what Jesus actually said is, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But they're talking to Pilate, and they know that Pilate won't care about their religious reasons, so they they want to condemn him on trumped-up charges. And listen here, it says he's saying that he himself is Christ, who is a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And so Pilate is a curious figure. Pilate knows that Christ 
is innocent. He recognizes that the chief priests and scribes are jealous of how popular Jesus is as a teacher. And yet Pilate, even though he's well aware that Christ is innocent, he's what we would call pragmatic. He just wants to keep the peace. He also has no idea that Jesus one day is going to judge him. If Pilate knew that and if he believed that, he never would have behaved like this. And I want to say to you that if you remember that Jesus is your judge, you will value truth over peace. But Pilate values peace over truth. He doesn't want to riot. And so he is willing to do the wrong thing for the sake of a false kind of peace. There is a danger that we would be just like that. People today all across America agree that there are two things you should never talk about. You should never talk about politics and you should never talk about religion because we just want to get along. But the reality is religion is one of the only things that is truly worth talking about. And if you value a false kind of peace over truth, you will fail to warn people that Jesus is a judge and they will be unprepared to meet him one day. If this is true, and if this is really true, it's the most important thing in the world to be ready to meet this judge. And I want to ask you this morning to examine your life. Do you behave as if this is true? Or do you behave like Pilate, who just wants to keep peace, who just wants to get along? who just wants to be able to have everyone have a good time together and not talk about things that really matter. But Pilate, because he values peace over truth, tries to get Jesus condemned by someone else. So look at verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, they had been at enmity with each other. See, we've just seen Jesus condemned by religious people. We've seen him declared an innocent man. But now you see this innocent man mocked. And notice how Herod behaves. Herod longs to see some sign. He views Jesus as some sort of traveling miracle worker, And he wants to be amazed, like going to see David Copperfield or something. How did he do that? How did he pull that off? Herod, if you look throughout the Gospels and if you look throughout the book of Acts, he's someone that he believes a little bit, but he will not obey. In fact, throughout the Bible, true belief is always shown by obedience. If you say you believe something is true, like, for example, Jesus will judge the entire world, then it makes sense that you would obey everything that Jesus tells you to do. Herod, while he's interested in occasionally hearing someone like John the Baptist or Jesus speak, while he wants to see some miracles, 
Herod continues to live in sin and will not repent and does not believe. But he loves to be entertained. In fact, as I was thinking about this and, and, and the way that they quickly move to mocking Jesus. So, oh, you're a king. Oh, well, here's a nice little robe for you. How's that going to work out for you, King Jesus? And they move from putting Jesus on trial to just making fun of him. Herod is, he's a millennial. He is a late night comedian. He loves to make jokes, but he cannot be serious. One of the great dangers of my generation, we love to read, we love to gather information, but we do not want to commit. And that's not unique to my generation. Many people are on the fence about Jesus. They've gathered some information, but they say, I just don't have quite enough. They've acted as if the claims of Christ are not historical without doing the research. In fact, I would mention to you one name. There's even a movie about the guy. If you like watching movies, there's a guy by the name of Lee Strobel. He's a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. His wife became a Christian. And he was so angry. Because he did not want to be married to a religious person. And so, as a journalist, he set out to disprove the historical claims of Christ. He said, I, I just want to save my wife from this madness. And in the process of examining the historical claims of Christ... He himself became a Christian. He's written a couple of books. One is A Case for Christ. One is A Case for the Resurrection. You can see a movie about his life. He did not want to become a believer. But when he examined the historical claims of Christ, he said, I have no choice. If I am intellectually honest, I'll recognize Jesus really lived and died and the evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. But if you want to sit on the fence... It's much easier and safer to make jokes, to just make light of things that should be very serious. And I want to warn you today that there's coming a day when that will cost you. If Jesus is really a judge, you ought not make fun of him. And the risk of putting off a decision to follow Christ could cost you for all of eternity. I want to beg you to not just keep peace like Pilate. I want to beg you to not make jokes and put off making decisions like Herod. Because if you remember that Jesus is your judge, you will not mock what is sacred. And as this trial continues, Jesus is condemned by religious people who are hard-hearted. He's declared innocent by a man who ought to set him free, but instead tries to get him condemned by someone else. Then he's mocked as an innocent man. Finally, he is sentenced as an innocent man. And look with me at verses 13 through 25. Herod mocks Christ and sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. 
Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. And so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Finally, this morning, we see Jesus Christ sentenced as an innocent man. You see the injustice, in fact, the greatest injustice in the history of the world, as the Son of Almighty God is put in the place of a criminal, and he's sentenced to die in our place. But I want to pause for a moment, and I want to point out what Jesus said at the beginning of this passage. Verse 69, he says, From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's absolutely true. Jesus was never powerless in his entire existence, but the book of Philippians says, He willingly humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The judge of the universe who will finally judge all the monsters of history. All the Hitlers, all the Stalins, every war criminal, and all of the people who we don't know. The people who got away with murder. The people who were abusers. The judge of all the universe was willing to humble himself and lay aside his power and glory and take your place. So that when you stand before him, you can find forgiveness and peace. Not only forgiveness and peace, you can find welcome into the family of God and eternal everlasting joy. Because your judge took your place. There is no one in the universe who loves you like that. And I want to invite you this morning to worship him with me. Be honest about where you're at in your heart and in your life. If you've heard this story and you've said, if I'm honest, I'm more like Pilate. I just want to keep peace. Or maybe you're more like Herod. You like to laugh and make jokes and just get on with your life. Well, the things that are of eternal importance are on the back burner if they are even there. If you really believe Jesus is your judge, you will worship him as your substitute And thank God for him. And you will give your life following him in obedience, being ready for the day that you stand before him. Would you pray with me? You might ask, how do I get ready? And if that's your question, I would urge you to talk to the Lord. Acknowledge your guilt. If you've not been faithful worshiping him with your life, If you've not confessed that He is the Lord, that He is the Son of God, that He is the Savior, tell Him that you believe that He is who He said He is. And in obedience, confess your sins and find peace and forgiveness. The Scripture says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. 
This is for believers and unbelievers. Find the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus because he took your place. Father, we thank you that in your great love for us, you sent your son. And in his great love for us, he was willing to be humbled and to die in our place. I ask that you would help us to be ready for the day when we see him as our judge. That he would look at us and and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of our rest. I pray that that would be true of everyone here. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.